for epilepsy, there is hope. Hey podcast listeners, Tori Robinson here for Epilepsy Sparks Insights, a podcast about epilepsy, epilepsy research, common comorbidities and all of the fascinating science behind it. Whether you have epilepsy, are a family member, a neurologist, neuropsychiatrist, therapist, neurophysiologist, scientist or researcher, Epilepsy Sparks Insights is designed to help you learn more about epilepsy from the other side of the table. I'm a person with epilepsy and some missing brain tissue. I hope to help bridge the unnecessary gap between patients, the public and the aforementioned. Because epilepsy research and science are cool. Maybe what the patient wants to know isn't, uh, you know, a drawing of the brain and arrows of where their seizures start and then spread. A patient might be more concerned about well, are there other conditions or how is this going to affect my relationship with my partner or my ability to go out to a pub or, you know, those things that, that maybe aren't always talked about. Hello, fellow humans. Today, I'm talking with Wyatt Benskin, an epilepsy-focused epidemiology and biostatistics academic from Case Western Reserve University, US, who has recently released a really very important paper reporting a very high prevalence of psychiatric and physical conditions amongst people with epilepsy, plus racial and ethnic disparities or differences. If you're interested in learning more about Wyatt's amazing project, stay tuned. Together, honestly, let's improve outreach, epilepsy understanding, care and research. Hello, Wyatt Benskin. <laughs> it's great to have you here today. Could you please tell everybody a bit about yourself and your work and your exciting paper? Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much, uh, Tori, for having me on. It was so exciting to see that, that this work resonates with folks, um, especially in the epilepsy community. And so um, I'm a PhD candidate at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I'm an epidemiologist and biostatistician and, and a population health scientist. So basically what all of that means is that I'm really curious about how we can use data and especially large healthcare data um, to improve, uh, you know, health, healthcare, and health outcomes um, for for everybody. But my big interest uh, lies in, for people with epilepsy. So, um, you know, my background is in public health, um, and then some research at the NIH here in the United States, and um, that's really where I became motivated. Um, to, to study epilepsy, I think like most most people who don't have epilepsy, um, I, I was kind of naive to the field when I first came in, but I, I realized quickly that it's a it's a condition that has a, a, a large stigma, a large social burden, um, and honestly is is rather underfunded um, from the research. Perspective. To say the least. Yeah, yeah. and so um, I really became motivated um, to say, well, this seems like a good challenge to take on um, for my doctoral work and and my career afterwards, and so. Um, I'm really passionate about how we can can use these data to understand um, both care and outcomes, but disparities as well for people with epilepsy, recognizing that that no two people are the same, but that that the structures we have in place um, bucket people into groups based on race, ethnicity. Um, and so how do we understand how disparities occur in a condition like epilepsy where um, you know, the consequences to not having access to treatment, to not being properly diagnosed, um, to not managing those comorbidities could have, you know, pretty severe consequences. So um, that's a bit about me and, and what motivated me to, to enter this field and do some of this work. This is really exciting. So tell everybody about your paper, because you've touched on 
topics that are very close to my heart. You, you know, you've come up with empirical evidence or a large selection of data, actually, to basically prove to the world these are the issues. These, as you said, these are the disparities between different groups of people. Um, people need to, uh, well, governments need to be knowing about this in order to make changes that benefit people. So tell us a bit more about this paper, please. Absolutely, yeah. So um, what we did is we used United States Medicaid data. And I know I know you speak to a large international audience. So in the US, Medicaid um, are those folks um, who are perhaps low income or have um, a disability. And so it's a really a safety net insurance program. They're, they're really the most vulnerable in our society here in the United States. And so um, what we did uh, with those data, and we had um, you know people with epilepsy um, is who we had these data on over five years, capturing all of their um, healthcare encounters during those five years. And um, there's been uh, meaningful literature to say that there's this large uh, comorbidity burden among people with epilepsy that, you know, things such as depression and anxiety are very common. Uh, but but where that's really been limiting and, and, and lacking is um, first understanding racial and ethnic disparities and inequities in the prevalence of these conditions. Um, and then also, you know, from a methodological standpoint, um, and I think a big gap between, you know, the research community and the, the patients, honestly, is that oftentimes what researchers do when we look at comorbidities is we have a, a predefined list that have been previously published, um, perhaps in a very different context. Um, and, and generally those are decided based on a relationship to some outcomes. So there's, you know, these algorithms which will say these are the 20 most comorbidities, the 20 most important comorbidities, but the reason they're most important is because they're associated with hospital readmission or right. emergency department visits. Um, but taking a step back, that may not be what's the most important to a patient. So the, the word comorbidity implies that you have a central condition, which in this case is epilepsy, and everything else is tangential to that. Um, but really what we're trying to move more towards is this idea of multi-morbidity multi or these combinations to say that that it's not uh, epilepsy plus hypertension. Maybe somebody's hypertension is actually more important to them because their epilepsy is well controlled or maybe their seizures are well controlled, but that anxiety and depression they feel is actually more important. So, um, you know, how do we move away from prioritizing uh, just their epilepsy, but saying this is this is a whole person. This is an individual with complex care and needs, and that you know most people most people don't only have epilepsy. Most people don't only have epilepsy and anxiety, right? There's a real potpourri of conditions that are potpourri. Yeah. That's such a polite word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, it, 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 and they, they occur in combination and together. And so that's what we sought. Uh, we had a couple goals for this paper, but one of them, which I think is really our, our biggest novel approach here, is instead of using that list of 20 or 30 conditions, um, we took all the diagnoses that we had available to us and we used a, um, a statistical technique uh, called association rule mining, and I'll just very briefly describe it because I think most people are familiar with it, whether or not you know it. So um, it's the same technique that Amazon uses when they say other people who bought this bought this, or you might also be interested in this. And what it does is it looks for those combinations 
in these data. And so my algorithm. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So and you're thinking, well, why does Instagram know I need to buy this? Or why is why does Amazon suggest this perfect thing just because I bought a new Dutch oven for my kitchen? Um, so, <laughs> you know, we, we use the same thing. And I really love that approach of, of taking these things that are used in consumer research and saying, how do we apply this to health? How do we how do we better mm -hmm. uh, take these tools to understand these complexities in health? You were talking about how, before before we started recording, how maths, uh, mathematics is such an important part of healthcare. Yeah. Uh, we're never taught this, really, unless you're in an academia, maybe not even all of academia. Like mathematics and st statistics are a huge, play a huge part, should uh, you know they be done well, in improving the lives of people affected by the epilepsies and other conditions and diseases. Yeah. Would you agree, Wyatt? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, something that our paper shows that, that hits home is that, um, you know, most of the conditions that we saw, uh, or maybe not most, but at least half that we saw, you know, a neurologist may not be the best position to care for. And so we might think, well, you know, somebody has epilepsy there, other than their primary care doc, you know, their neurologist is the person they most frequently see. But, you know, we saw things such as um, back problems or urinary tract infections that, you know, how do other care providers um, help care for people with epilepsy. And that's exactly why, you know, without these, you know, kind of boring pages of tables and results, um, you know, we, we wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know how do we transform or reform the healthcare system? How do we make a larger swath of providers say, well, sure, you might specialize in hypertension, but we see this large prevalence among, of hypertension among people with epilepsy. And so a lot of your patients may have epilepsy. Are you thinking about their epilepsy? Are you asking them how, you know, how does their epilepsy affect their hypertension control? And thinking about that complexity and trying to put numbers to what people, people like yourself who live with epilepsy on a daily basis know that that is your life, but putting that to a population scale um, and then turning that around and taking it to to hospitals, to clinicians, to policymakers, and saying, you know, this isn't just one person's story. This is a population health level issue. Hopefully, will motivate motivate change at at a grander scale. And because with the epilepsies, I find and and I understand why, but uh, it's not an excuse, but the seizures are the things that clinicians tend to look at. And I totally get it, especially if somebody's at high risk of pseudep and injury, et cetera, and especially if you have refractory epilepsy, I totally get it. But often the, the comorbidities such as anxiety and depression, well, to us, they can be equally, if not more important. Mm -hmm. And in addition, if these are not addressed, well, we could be missing a trick in potentially reducing a person's likelihood of having a seizure anyway because yeah. you're not so stressed out, right? Yeah, exactly. And the same goes for pain, back pain, because you covered back pain in your paper as well. Now, if you're in pain all the time, you're not going to sleep as well, generally. And then if you don't sleep enough, you're more likely to have seizures. So it's like having all these balls, which are like doing this most frustrating little dance, to say the least, and bringing them together, bringing the clinicians and statisticians, yeah. did I say the right word? Yeah. Together. And just, right, let's put the, you know, the pieces of the puddle, pu puddle, feels like a puddle, puzzle together to provide the best quality of life possible for the patient, the individual, and everyone else. And yeah, just, you'll have... I imagine, I mean, you said that I think a third of people are on, is it Medicaid or Medicare? Medicaid. Heaps yes. of them, Medicaid, right? Heaps of them, I bet, 
are likely to get off Medicaid and possibly get into work or at least part-time work maybe or even if they only do voluntary work or for instance they are still contributing to society and the economy and you know possibly going to be taking less drugs if everything's you know well balanced so all these statistics once summarized and analyzed by you are incredibly powerful yeah, and I, and I think you hit on such an important point there about particularly anxiety and mood disorders. And so so we found um, a much higher prevalence than other studies have reported. So we found 46.5% uh, of folks in our study, so basically half, had uh, an anxiety and mood disorder. And I want to, um, you know, uh, some of the nitty gritty of our methods are that all of our data come from what's being billed. And so um, I think that's particularly powerful because what that 46.5% really means is that 46.5% of people have talked to their doctor about their anxiety and their mood disorders. And the doctor has then diagnosed them with that and then billed the insurance for that. And so how many folks are walking around of that remaining, you know, 63.5%, how many actually do have anxiety about their seizures, about their epilepsy, and and thinking through how this might change care, and thinking, well, you know, somebody um, somebody might lose their job or not be able to work um, because they're worried about having a seizure. But if you're able to help with that anxiety, is that gonna is that gonna bring it to a point where they, as you said, they could work, you know, half time or even back to full time? You know, is it actually their epilepsy that's preventing them? from doing what they, they want in life, whether that be education or work, or is it, or is it these comorbidities? Is it that anxiety, depression, mood disorders? Um, is it the back pain because they're at home, you know, because of that anxiety? There's a real cascade. And they're not moving, and then they might, you know, their mus- our muscles can like become floppy instead of nice and firm. Yeah. And then you can't say, yeah. yeah. Okay, core strength, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Your core strength might not be like the best of the best. Absolutely, and I think, you know, we've all, we've all got a taste of this during the pandemic of, you know, you're like, oh, I haven't been outside in three days. I need to go for a walk or, you know, particularly yeah. early on when, when we were all really being told to stay at home. But, you know, the fact that, that this has been going on for decades for people with epilepsy who are, um, you know, uh, not afraid to leave home, but we've created a society that that can be unwelcoming. And we've there's medical systems that that don't um, that don't always uh, appreciate this complexity. Um, you know, and, and I and what I want to emphasize and what we wrote in the paper is that, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to claim that uh, it's a neurologist's job to manage anxiety and mood disorders, hypertension, back problems, developmental disorders, headache, injuries, all these things. But recognizing certainly in the U.S. healthcare system that, you know, um, there's other specialists out there. There's there's also generalists. There's primary care providers. You know, in the U.S., we've seen. Um, over the past 30, 40 years, this movement away from pr- primary care and more towards specialists, but taking a step back and saying, well, primary care um, could be a, a better mechanism for somebody whose seizures are well controlled. Maybe they don't need to see their neurologist as often if their seizures are well controlled, but you know, maybe as they get older, they develop hypertension like a lot of us do. And so you know, their neurologist may not know how to manage that hypertension, but the relationship between the heart and seizures is being pretty well established now that you know during seizures there's heart rate variability um, and and those concepts and is that driving you know there's so much complexity here it's it's kind of like a ball of yarn and and what we were trying to do is is maybe not untangle the ball of yarn but say oh this is where the line goes and this is how it's tangled up 
um, you know, and, and maybe instead of untangling it with one care provider, we can we can pull the ball of yarn apart and say, okay, you tackle this part, you tackle this part. It's like a ball of skanky yarn, actually, I think. And it's, it's like we can do, dilute the skankiness and make it into nice something and knit it something pretty. Exactly. If we put those skanky bits of yarn to the, to the right clinical yeah. professional. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And reduce the pressure, I think, um, because many, you know, neurologists or epileptologists are under such, well, and actually most people I speak to in the sphere, under such, such pressure, feeling they have to deal with everything because we don't have the resources yet or not sufficient resources to um to provide people with the specific clinician they need I'd like it makes me think of um neurologists that i've had experience with and i know many other people have who might be a generalist which is great but um they can't provide the care that that person with refractory epilepsy and the whole shebang needs or they they're personal interest might be say stroke yeah and although strokes can certainly be linked to epilepsies it's not well their primary interest so we need to have these professionals you know it, it's like we need a crm system isn't it to be able to direct people to the right individual automatically and it's a bit of a wishful thinking but you know it would save our government's money yeah it would bring money to the economy exactly. it would reduce mental health issues yep. it would be positivity all round. yeah and that's exactly what you know I'm, I'm i'm hopeful that the clinicians in in your audience um can take away from this is just saying you know we report the top 10 and and combinations and stuff but really i think what i hope people will will take home at the clinicians is saying, you know, how many times um, do I ask my patients with epilepsy? Well, what's your primary health concern right now? How many times does an appointment start? Not by saying, oh, have you been taking your seizure medications? How has your seizure control been? But saying, you know, how have you been? How have you, you know, maybe, again, maybe the seizures for some folks are well controlled. You know, they get on that right medication after trial and error. They've undergone surgery or implantation and and but now it's the anxiety or maybe it's you know they're having some some hypertension start to emerge that's actually causing them more discomfort and so you know taking a step back and saying you know asking those patients with epilepsy because we know that there are so many other conditions that that play a role here and we saw injuries rise to the top right so certainly maybe the seizures are the concern but really um is somebody more afraid of that injury than they are the seizure, right? They're more afraid of the result of the seizure. And so, you know, that's a really different, you know, you have to manage both, but then the conversations about, well, tell me about, you know, do you live with people? What's your uh, apartment like? What's your home like? Are there ways that we can make you feel more comfortable while we find that right medication for you? Rather than saying, well, the injury is the result. We have to address the seizure and I'll see you in six months. Um, you know, how do we do something that can really improve that interim and that care and, and also empower people to say, I'm being heard that these things that I'm, that anxiety I'm feeling um, is being validated and is being heard and is being addressed. You know, you're really making me think about how a huge thing I think is left out often is when somebody is diagnosed, they don't understand their own condition, right? It's new to most of the time anyway, most of the time it's new to them or new to the one that they love. And 
I feel that we need to be taught how to talk about our own medical condition to other people. Because say, for instance, I had a focal seizure in a pub, right? Um, Even today, I'd be like, oh my goodness, did I do anything weird during that seizure? What are people going to think of me? Now, I can deal with that now. But in the past, I would still be, even though I could speak very confidently about my epilepsy, I would still be like worried, oh my goodness, what's happened? Especially for a tonic-clonic seizure, you know? Like lots of people, you know, defecate, you know, wet themselves and stuff, and you don't know how other people are going to react. So I, I do wonder sometimes, are uh, clinicians um, missing a trick when somebody's diagnosed? You know, how can we educate this person with epilepsy or the family affected so that they can explain it to others comfortably and without being, you know, stressed or worried that they're going to be judged or tucked out of their social circle, or, you know, and things like that. Confidence through education is a really big deal with epilepsy, I think. Absolutely. And and, and understanding how, um, you know, how to communicate that. And, um, you know, I feel like we've done such a good job in um, mental health conditions of really starting to talk about that and saying that, you know, how does somebody, um, you know, a lot of the, the you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and those options for anxiety and mood disorders are based around helping somebody understand their condition. And that alone can really just empower somebody, can actually bring the anxiety down by saying, you know what, this is what's going on in your body. This is the the biologic mechanism that's making you feel this way. And somebody says, oh, you know, it's kind of terrifying, but it's kind of cool. And we've done that so well in some fields, but but not in epilepsy. And also understanding, I think, you know, I, I we know so much about epilepsy, but at the same time, we know so little. And it's such a mystery. And, and uh, being able to communicate that uncertainty, I think, is so important in saying that, um, you know, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, but also recognizing that that maybe what the patient wants to know isn't, uh, you know, a drawing of the brain and arrows of, of how, you know, where their seizures start and then spread. You know, certainly they might want to know that, but um, a patient might be more concerned about, well, are there other conditions or how is this going to affect my uh, relationship with my partner or my ability to go out to a pub or, you know, those things that, that maybe aren't always talked about um, that can drive, you know, that anxiety and those mood disorders and depression and which can lead to then hypertension and back problems. And again, it's this a cascade and this web of things that um, really taking a patient-centered approach um, is, is, I think, so critical. I can see this beautiful world if, uh, you know, th- this all occurring if we have the funds to do it yeah, exactly. <laughs> and can encourage people who we, we need to be involved to become involved. Um, yeah, the world could change for so many people. And, and I wonder how many more people would be diagnosed if the world was a better place for people with epilepsy. Wouldn't that be interesting? Absolutely. You know? yeah. What are you going to be focusing on now? Now you've published this paper, you know, what are you going to take from that? And yeah, what's your next project or how are you using this data for your next project? There's a, there's a lot of places I think that we can go with this. So this was a really descriptive study that was really bombarding uh, the reader with data. And, and we do synthesize a lot of it and we, we touch on a lot of things, right? So we touch on um, the combinations of conditions, those racial ethnic disparities, we touch on utilization. And for those folks who are in the, the top quartile, the top 25% of utilizers, how we saw that among those, the prevalence of anxiety and mood disorders was actually 75%. Um, so, you know, those folks that are interacting most with the healthcare system have way higher needs. So we really did like kind of a big descriptive data dump here um, for two reasons. One, very selfishly, because we we want, we want have so many avenues of, of, 
of uh, kind of inquiry that we want to pursue. And this lays the groundwork, but we also want to be able to give um, other folks the ability to say, well, you know, my specialty is migraine, and I want to do, a, do research on epilepsy and migraine, and here's a paper that's going to help justify uh, why, how I can go get funding from you know, the NIH or NHS or whoever that their institution or, or country's funder is to do that research. And so for us, um, you know, our next avenue are to, to take these data um, and to see, uh, you know, we were talking beforehand um, or, or maybe at the start of this podcast here about outcomes and how so many times uh, we use lists of conditions that have been um, associated with outcomes. And so yeah. um, I, I don't always think that's great because the inherent limitations uh, from a patient point of view. But the reason that we do that is if we can show that these outcomes affect hospital readmission or emergency department utilization or costs, right. or even medication adherence, which then adherence affects utilization, um, you know, ED visits and such. So, so my next uh, kind of next studies here are thinking about these conditions that we examined and how do we relate them how do we relate the complexity that we lay out here to a complexity in outcomes? Um, because you know we've, we've talked about that need for these data not just to speak to patients and caregivers and clinicians, but policymakers. And you know if I can, uh, if we can show that these conditions or these combinations increase somebody's risk of hospitalization or emergency department use, then that now has an incentive to say, okay, so we're gonna compensate neurologists and primary care docs for managing this complexity. We're gonna, we're gonna take a, a fraction of the cost and move it up front and we're gonna save this money. So that's really the next step for us is to make that next, that next step in this line of inquiry to say, and here's the, the ultimate consequence of ignoring what we have for so long. Right. So it's going to cost the taxpayer, the government, the um, whatever their title might be, money and a lot of money, you know. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, those in, in the positions of power do know that no matter the continent upon which you're on right now, we will vote for you if you do the right thing. You know, <laughs> that's what it's, a, you know. Um, so please. And if you've got any questions for Wyatt, I'm sure he'll be very very happy to take them um if you yeah I, I mean i don't know if there's any sort of news media people on here but if so i guess get in touch with wyatt because we have or well, wyatt has the data to back up these claims this is empirical evidence showing that investment in um, care for the people affected by these different conditions and diseases is going to benefit the you know human population to be honest so let's sort this out right absolutely yeah and, and one thing i do want to uh, touch on too um we won't go too depth into it and it's in the paper of those racial and ethnic disparities right 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 that um you know these conditions don't uh the the prevalence of these conditions are not uniform and some of that could be true disparities due to structural factors, but also recognizing that that some groups, some populations, um, you know, if you have a white healthcare provider, which is most care providers in the United States, um, you know, a, a, a minoritized patient uh, may not feel comfortable uh, talking with that provider. May That provider may have implicit bias that, oh, you know, their, their seizures are due to, to poor medication 
uh, adherence, not due to refractory epilepsy, to, to drug-resistant epilepsy. And so what we also presented in the paper, and um, you know, I think is really important are these disparities and that it's not uniform. It's not as though one, uh, one racial and ethnic subgroup always has the highest prevalence. It really varies based on condition. Um, because of those structural factors, which which do create disparities in prevalence, but also the way that our healthcare system is built, and, and implicit bias, and just racism, honestly, built into these systems that that lead to these disparities in prevalence, I think, is such a crucial point that as we continue on this work, kind of a second avenue is how do we not just associate these with outcomes, but how do we really unpack these disparities and say. You know, this is uh, this is what's due to these structural factors, to structural racism, to implicit bias and individual racism, um, and how can we reduce disparities and reduce inequities in care? So that's another, I think, really important part. And um, you know, every country looks different, and every country has different, you know, histories that lead to these inequities and disparities. And you know, in the U.S., we think so much about you know, the, the, the racism that's embedded in our laws and embedded in the history of this nation. Um, and so, you know, every country and, and every care provider and, and you should look inward, right, and say, how does, how does our structure of health care and how does my perspective of, of my patients, how has that been impacted by these structural factors and how might that contribute to these disparities? So, um, so much to talk about, but another big avenue I hope policymakers and others will pay attention to is, is equity and disparities. I completely agree, and I've, I think I've already noted you, Dan, we might have to do another one on this, specifically on these disparities, because it's something very close to my heart too. So I work with South London Morsley Trust, and we have a really, really big emphasis on disparities in healthcare, access to healthcare, um, higher rates of certain mental illness in people of ethnic minority, um, because, well, just like you're doing, we need to get this, this data and then, okay, not just declare the disparities, but okay, what are we gonna do about Absolutely. it, right? Absolutely. And, let, and let's be you know, honest and open about it. And when people feel often, I think very, well, I know, um, very, very nervous about even talking about these things, but if we don't talk about them, it's never going to get dealt with. Um, if we've got good, clean data to, you know, back up what we're saying, um, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the sort of like, this is the place to start. This is, this is great. And, and also, yeah, people are always worried about saying the wrong thing. Well, don't worry so much because if you're around people who want to make change for good, then it doesn't matter. Let's just, you know, we can politely contradict each other. And that's cool. And let's just deal with it. And, I, you know, that's science, yeah. right? Yeah. So this is a, so get ready for the next um, episode <laughs> with, uh, with Wyatt. I actually haven't asked him yet, but we're going to with it. <laughs> Thank you so much today, Wyatt. You've been an absolute star. This is fantastic. And I really look forward to reading your next paper. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope, I hope uh, people enjoy this. And, and thank you for the work that you do, Tori. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.